And it's like, without a goal, there's no reason to train. And I always remember in that university assignment back in 1994, what is your biggest goal ever, your biggest dream? I actually wrote it down in 1994 in an assignment at university. Well, the longest thing you can do in Great Britain is to run the length of it. Uh, every year they'll become a world record holder, but how many people break world records? So I wrote it down in 1994. I want to break the world record by running from Lansing to John Jones. Didn't know how far it was. Didn't know who, who even had the record. And I wrote it down. And that's why eventually that became my dream goal. Because I actually wrote it down. And it took me 12 years to achieve it back then. And then, yeah, another 12, 13 years later to do it again. That, my friend, was Sharon Gator. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another Ultra Running Special. My name is Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. Really don't know where to start with Sharon, record holder of both the Joggle and the Mizzen Head to Malin. Winner of races such as the Hardmore, Fire and Ice, the Himalayan High Ultra, Commonwealth 24-hour champion, silver in the European 100k in 24-hour, with a 17-year career racing at the top for Great Britain. After a difficult upbringing, she really recolored her life through the sport of running. Before we start, I'd just like to give a shout out to the sponsors of this episode, XL Sports. They've just released a virtual 500 kilometer summer challenge across Ireland. It starts on June the 1st and registration is now open. So why not join me by clicking the link in the show notes. Some great tips on nutrition and training blocks in this episode. So I don't want to hold you up any further. It's with great pleasure I give you Sharon Gator. So thanks anyway. It's, uh, I met you in Castle Ward very, very briefly. Very briefly, yeah. Well, in Sharon, how are you doing? Storm Dennis. <laughs> That's right. I forgot it was actually during Storm Dennis. We, call, we give the storms a names these days. like So I thought I'd get talking to you, but you sort of disappeared very, very quickly. Yeah, I, I really... It wasn't the weather. It was the course that I really struggled with um, because I didn't realise how narrow it was going to be in places. And the first hour, I was just you know like we everyone charged down the hill and then it all came to a halt when we get to that narrow bit where the at the bottom of the you know through yeah. the car park and then it was that quagmire and everyone came to a halt and then you had that big group in the front nobody could get by them and it was just the first lap was frustrated and then the nature of the course the mud on the course and the the narrowness and the trippy stumbling bits and the I kind of did the first lap, but oh my God, this is going to be a challenge. And I didn't realize it was going to be quite as bad as what it was. It's probably okay in summer. But again, you couldn't, I couldn't just settle in and do my own thing. I was always, there was always people in the way. And I kind of, I'm a loneliness of the long distance runner person. And I like to be away in the middle of nowhere. And I just couldn't get away. And it was just, there was always people around. And I know a lot of people need people. I actually don't. I like, I kind of probably like these virtual challenges because there's no one there, you know, I'm on my own kind of thing. So I really struggled in that and I fell over quite early on in the race. I think it was either, I think it was the second lap I fell over and uh, I kind of ripped my hands to bits and I couldn't use one of my hands. I really hurt my hand. And then uh, I just carried on, got all the kit on. And then I think I got to about eight hours and I, you know, I thought, well, it got dark, you know, and I think that was the problem. And I do have a problem with my eyesight. I've got a, I've got an eye condition and I really do struggle in darkness hours. Uh, I can't wear a head torch very well because it just flickers and makes me very dizzy. So I have to actually hold it in my hand. I think one of the comments somebody made to me, haven't you got a head torch? I said, actually, it is a head torch, but I'm holding it in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was too, too difficult to explain that, no, I can't wear it on my head, you know, or I very rare wear it on my head. I can only wear it for short periods on my head. 
And I think that really, the night time, it just became too challenging for me. And, you know, it was just, it was too soon for me as well. I'd planned to do one in Spain, um, which was about three weeks after that event. And that at last minute got cancelled. And that's why I suddenly, with a week's notice, decided to do the one in, in, in Belfast. And, you know, when your head's not quite prepared for it because you need another three weeks to, to get ready for it. Um, so that kind of didn't work out well for me. So I wasn't going there with the right headspace to start with or the proper training behind me. Uh, and then because it was darker, colder, wetter than what Spain would have been. But it was good to experience it. And, uh, yeah, I think in uh, on a better and a different course, uh, and one that doesn't need so much, let's just say, navigation, you know, at night time where you really needed that head torch, you know, something that's a little bit easier to see at night time without so many obstacles in the way because, you know, it was very trippy, stumbly, twisty journey. And uh, it's actually, and it's a, it's actually a... down at one stage. And what was so funny about Dan, you know, when you got down to the little bit of a uh, road bit and there was a massive big puddle all across the yeah, road, yeah. we well, feet were so wet. I just ran through it every single lap. I thought, well, we got wet feet just... And Dan was tiptoeing around the sides of it and said, I guess you're going to go through the middle of it. I thought, why waste your energy going around? Your feet must be soaked. And it just made me laugh that he just tried to tiptoe around the puddles and I just went through them. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I took the lu luxurious option there. So I was with Dan in the actual house. They have like a house there that you can finish yeah. every loop. Um, but it is quite technical. As you were saying there, it's narrow. It was a, it was a bike course, like a, a mountain bike course, you know. So that's why right. that trail gets very narrow. Um, uh, but you would have got because I do know that you you're a long distance solo runner. You enjoy that solitude, yeah. although you enjoy events and things like that as well. But um, it is like the first twenty four hours of an event like that is quite sociable. So at least you yeah. had that experience and exposure yeah. to it, and you know what to expect the next time coming round. You can be more prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, it was a a good taster, and uh, you know, be nice to do it again, and uh, yeah, be more prepared for it next time. So it's not something that I did and said, oh, I never want to do that again. It's just that I wasn't quite ready for that one, and everything <laughs> kind of fired against me a little bit, and uh, yeah, so yeah, I'll attempt again. But, but uh, you couldn't yeah, pick the worst was... one. It was most probably the worst backyard event that ever occurred on the planet, like Storm Dennis, pure swamps <laughs> and gutters. Um, I had trained on the course um, a couple of weeks before that, and I had done like eight, nine loops on my own. Lovely, dry conditions, beautiful, and thought, this is class. Like, um, yeah. I, only, I only done 50 miles that night of the event. I said, all right, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pulling the legs out yeah. of you, you're soaked, it's miserable, it's wet. <laughs> and I, when I pulled out, like, and I think it was like two o'clock in the morning, Dan and those guys opened the door to the hut, like, and it was blowing a hurricane outside and lashing down <laughs> i felt so sorry for him i felt like saying just sit down dan <laughs> sit down well, he had very limited kit as well i mean uh you know i know he flew across and he said well i haven't got much kit because i changed kit and he commented to me about oh i see you've had a kit change i said well, yeah i've got a van full of kit because i had a little camper van so i wasn't so bad and that's where i was staying but the plan was at night time that you know i think when i met you i was asking is there some kind of like a communal place to go thinking that, okay, at night time, rather let Bill sleep and I'll go into a communal area and then just rest, the, you know, not rest, but, you know, have a break there rather than keep disturbing Bill. And that's what I was looking for. But in the end, there wasn't one. So, okay, I had to keep opening the door up, in and out. We had the dog with us and, like, uh, every time I come in, it's like, am I coming out with you? No, you've got to stay in here. And, um, yeah, it was getting very muddy in there. But it was it was okay. It was uh, just, another, just another experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with ultras. Every single event is so different. Okay, Storm 
Dennis kind of, that was part of the challenge really, wasn't it? It wasn't something, okay, this is going to be hard. It's just, that's part of the challenge. Whatever race you go to, there's different weather conditions. You know, I run across deserts and okay, the challenge is going to be heat. Okay, this particular one was uh, Storm Dennis, so that was just added to it. So, you know. Storm and Ireland, like, lashing down with rain. But it is pretty unique. It always rains. Do you know, it's funny, but every time I go to Ireland, it's nearly always rained. And I, I, I cycled across Ireland, and it rained every single day. Every time I've done a race there, it's rained all the time. And do you know what? When I ran the length of Ireland, I broke the world record running across the length of Ireland. I never had a drop of rain and it was the end of March and I, I, I prepared all this rain kit to go it will rain every day in Ireland and you know what we had the sunniest driest weather and it was the end of March it was incredible so yeah the, the sun does shine in Ireland sometimes. See Ireland's just trying to test you, you see when you're doing smaller events we thought right give her some rain if it's smaller we'll give her some wind and rain and because that was <laughs> mizzen head to, down to the full length we're like, okay, don't give her the weather. The distance will get her. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. trying to challenge you in some way or form. But it's pretty unique in these events. Like, who's standing and towing the line with you? Like, so you talked about Dan, that Dan there. He won the um, 24-hour European Championship. You had Ian Keith. Yeah. That was his first time in the event. Um, he had just won UTMB um, Oman. So yeah. he did, like, and these amazing people sort of, Along with all the other people that are there as well, like throwing that, yeah. challenging themselves in these long distance events. Like it's quite a small, like I had Mark on the podcast last week and I was doing a little bit of prep and I was reading about his bad water 2009. And I thought yeah. like, geez, I was reading this report and it's like, well, Sharon Gator was in that race as well. Like, and we had Dean Carnazes <laughs> on the week before that as well. He was in it. And I'd actually sent you a message saying, Would you, did you do bad water 2009? And you come back, yeah, yeah, that was me. I did do it. Like, and then I finished the end of the report I was reading. I went, oh shit, that report is from Sharon Gator. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've done amazing in that race. Like, but it just shows you how small. Like Dean Carnazes, I said to, I had made uh, the comment that you know the ultra running world is getting bigger and bigger. He says, but is it really, or have you just become one of those people and you're now in that world? And I think more and more I interview people, the more and more that. Um, that ultra world is getting smaller and smaller because like the the bad water 2009 like we had um dean Carnazes, mark bain and yourself all three of you did that race yeah and you did yeah. did beat dean as well just gonna throw that oh, out did there I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, race there. yeah but you broke that was the quickest somebody from great britain had done the bad water yeah it's, it's william Sitchell claimed it as a a British record and I thought well I don't kind of class it as a British record because every time I do a race abroad and if I'm the fastest Brit then it's a British record you know um <laughs> you know I, I kind of can't class that as a record you know well, I do break records I know William likes to break records and like class them all as this that and everything else but to me you know to be the fastest Brit and it wasn't really a challenge it was just yeah. a case the challenge is actually to do that race and it really is I, I don't know I've done races across deserts but the heat in Badwater is beyond the heat of any race I've ever done and I mean the two hottest places where in the world where temp hottest temperatures have been recorded are in Libya and in in Badwater and I've actually run across Libya the Libyan desert and I've run Badwater but Badwater was way way hotter I think the tarmac and the reflection from the, the road as opposed to a desert heat is very, very different. And I remember standing on the start line like the day before at 10 o'clock in the morning, the time would start. 
and it just burns your skin and you think how on earth can anyone run across it and my husband just he had to get back in the air conditioned jeep because it was so hot and, he's, and he said i don't even know how i can support you in this and he had three of the most amazing canadian crew that looked after not just me but him because he couldn't really get out the car much because he couldn't stand the heat and he really does struggle in the heat it's and, almost like uh, 50 degrees celsius it's touching at times it is it's hard to describe the heat that you get out there and it's it, it really is a staggering heat and it's incredible that anyone can run across it and it's not really a race it really is a challenge to get from one end to the other and that's how i saw it i didn't see it as a race i just saw it as i've got to get from one end to the other and okay i, I kind of did want to break william's record just for the principle of it but <laughs> <laughs> i believe dan's now got it dan's now got the record anyway so uh, i'll probably still hold the female record and i mean some of our fellow female international ultra runners have done it and it's surprising that i do still hold the the, the female record which uh yeah, but I think for a British athlete to go there and run it, you just don't train in any conditions like that. It's got to be the local people that live there, you know, the Pam Reeds that live and train in that, and Jamie Donaldson's that they live there, they train there, they can experience it. And we can't experience the hills like that either, you know. There's quite a bit of climbing in that, and yeah. to experience the non-stop hairpinning up and down is, is in the middle of a race is actually quite a challenge too, you know. But, is, it goes over, yeah. is it two mountain ranges that goes over? Yeah, it goes over two mountain ranges and it finishes going up to the portals of Mount Whitney. So it finishes with, I remember the last half marathon had something like 5,000 feet of climbing. <laughs> so once you've done your 100 plus miles, you've got a half marathon that's 5,000 feet of climbing. But, but it's uh, unique in the way that it starts below sea level though, doesn't it? That's one of the reasons yeah. why it's so baking hot as well. That's it, yeah, yeah. But you had a great race though. You must have been delighted with that. Like, cause you, did you come fourth in that race? Oh, I can't even remember where I come. I know I didn't win it. I know that, but I did enjoy the race, and it and yeah, it was challenging. I had three Canadian crew, and I think the challenge was I hadn't met any of these crew. You know, like because you have to have so many crew to do it. And I thought I didn't quite know how I was going to recruit crew. And as soon as I put my name on the my name come up on the roster, apparently there's a lot of people that actually want to do the race. And if you get to crew people, you actually get points towards cool. doing it yourself. And I had these three Canadian ladies, all who wanted to do the race, never got in. And they were actually on the lookout for, they had their own criteria of who they wanted to support. And apparently <laughs> I fitted, I didn't have to apply for them, but I fitted the bill for them. They wanted a, a preferably a female, preferably someone that would run pretty quick because they didn't want to be out there for two days or whatever, 60 hours or whatever the time limit was. Uh, and somebody that spoke English, that was their criteria. And as soon as they saw me, they actually applied to, please, can we be your crew? Well, job done. And you know when you've never actually met a crew and then you actually meet them at the event and I'm thinking, oh, you know, you have this view of what other people might be like. I bet they like demanding Americans that are telling you do this and do that. And I don't like to be told what to do. You know, like I know what I want. I just ask what I want. And please just give it to me. And you know what? Those three crew are friends of a life. They were amazing. They did everything I wanted. They were, I can't even put into words how supportive they were, encouraging they were. Uh, and one of them did actually get to run it um, two, three years later. Um, it has a sad ending, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, but Mary Betts was one of those people. I met her in the Grand de Grand, running across the Grand Canyon, where you run across it for seven days, and she ran that, um, and she was actually doing another event, and she actually died in an event, so um, she actually got to run Badwater, so it's, you know, she was younger than me, and, uh, yeah, yeah that's you know, but the, the it's ultra, one of the sad stories of life, but that's how I remember her and like looking after me and uh, yeah. The ultra community is very 
well it is just very much that isn't it a community and you meet these people oh, yeah. like and yeah. it's you have all these memories about the race and what you went through but the ones that really stick out and go a bit deeper are the people that you meet in the camaraderie and things like that isn't it yeah 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 so that i like to say i'm a lonely runner like been in the middle of nowhere but you do create you know when you some of these events where you spend a whole week together you know and i love those events because during the day you're out running on your own but then in the evening you all come to camp and that's where you share your stories and that's probably what i like most about ultras those kind of events where i have that freedom to run on my own but in the evenings you you share your story with like-minded people that have gone through the same experience but a different experience of doing the same event if you see what i mean it's great energy isn't it it's very inspiring as well like yeah. And um, you first yeah. came on my radar last August when you done you broke the world record in the joggle. Yeah. And um, people know we've had um Andy ch- I'll have to cut that out cuz I can't remember Andy's second name. Andy Pearson. <laughs> Sorry Andy. Andy Pearson. Oh, I met Andy. I met Andy. What a lovely guy. What a lovely guy. We had yeah. him on the podcast actually about a month ago. So we did like and he's on the backyard a few times and I kept on apologizing to him because he was in a bad state and I kept on mentioning it in different podcasts. <laughs> so I'm apologizing again, Andy, because I forgot your second name there. And um, but he had done the joggle as well. Obviously, he met you on course. He did, yeah. I mean, he couldn't have come at a more opportune time. Um he did actually email. I actually put something out because I saw what Dan did when he tried his joggle. And I actually saw Dan when he was doing his joggle. I saw him up in Scotland uh, near the Pentlands and he was with a group and they were just running down the road, really taking over the road quite dangerously and cars were beeping and I thought, you know, and and I just didn't want loads of people joining me like that. And, you know, I said, I like that loneliness. I kind of, if somebody keeps talking to me while I'm running, it's a distraction. I like, I like running on my own and I like it peace and quiet. And I didn't want a big bunch of people running along, chatting to me, talking about this, talking about that. And, you know, when you're in a record frame of mind, I just want to run, you know, I'm not a chatterbox, you know. Okay, you're doing a little race and you're jogging around the hills. Yeah, I love to chat and love to talk and love to do that. But when you're on a record and you've got a mission and you're tired, I can't deal with people. It sounds awful, that. But I just want to be left on my own. So I actually put a little thing on my website. Please come and join me, say hello. But I actually don't want to run with you. And I I tried to do it in a way that wasn't rude to people because people want to come and see you. But I just didn't want that. Interact, running along the road chatting to people and having a conversation I just didn't want that you know I don't mind hello shake your hand thanks for coming off I go and that's what I wanted not to run along and Andy Person saw that and he emailed me and said I'd really like to run with you but I've seen this comment on your email that you don't want people to run with you and I tried to explain that it's not that I don't want people to run with me but I don't want loads of people running with me talking to me and distracting and uh, and I said you can come and run you know come and bike with me and like do you know you know, please do come. And I did invite him. And I completely forgot about it because obviously once you're running, you're in in running mode. And out of the blue, he appeared uh, somewhere near, it wasn't far from Bristol, but I'd just been over the Seven Bridge and it was chucking it down with rain. It was bouncing off the roads. The puddles I've just waded through ankle deep water. And all of a sudden, this person appears on his bike. And I actually had Eleanor Robinson running with me at the time. And uh, and she wasn't enjoying it. The rain was horrible. And, yeah, you know, she's on a bike. It wasn't fun. I think she was tired. And when Andy came along, I said, well, Eleanor, do you want a break? Because Andy's here. And then, like, let Andy take over the the, the block, you know, because he's going to run, the, he's going to cycle the block with me. So she gratefully escaped very fast. And Andy <laughs> actually took over the crewing duties for that hour. So she gave him his jack, her jacket and the, 
the bottles of drink that we had and he actually cycled with me and he was such he was a really lovely guy I you know I wish he was part of my crew he was so nice he understood it he knew what to say he knew when to be quiet and and what a lovely lovely guy and I really enjoyed his company I really did yeah and uh, and and did you see the bit at the end I finished it and I had to go back to the studios near Bristol for an interview with I don't know one of the media people and I hadn't realized I left my tracker on and he found me and we're driving down the road and his car come by bibbing and like asking us to pull over and he had a bottle of champagne and a card for me (laughs) (laughs) I mean where where else would that happen and that was Andy Person and his uh partner so yeah absolutely amazing what a lovely guy yeah that was brilliant and, uh, followed him since then what distance was it for me in terms of how far i went um i recorded it as 822 miles uh i've got all the obviously all the garmin data and there was two sections where i actually one section where i had to take a big diversion because a bridge was closed and there was another one where i actually went off route for a mile and they had to come back a mile so I actually did about four miles in addition to that. So I did actually run 826 miles, um, but I've just declared it as 822. Um, I mean, I measured it on the map as 822 and those four miles extra. And it actually came up pretty accurate. So what was measured on the maps actually came up pretty accurate. So if I hadn't done the four miles extra, it would have came out at 822. Um, how long did that take, um, man? How long did it take? 12 days, 11 hours, 6 minutes and 7 seconds. <laughs> I've got to change my um, pin number now because I've always got 12 days. Uh, I can't remember. 12 days, 16 hours, 22 minutes ingrained in my brain, which was my previous record. So I haven't quite got round to my new one yet. But yeah, because yeah, I've got it both ways. Oh, that's both ways. Was it an opposite way last time? Yeah, I deliberately this time I deliberately did it the opposite way because I done Lands End John O'Groats last time. I deliberately didn't want to be comparing myself to that, so I did want to do it the other way um and just to say well okay i've mastered it in both directions now as well you know it's just another little thing isn't it what's it called the opposite way then is it le, le jog le jog yeah le jog or <laughs> I, should, I should have knew like stupid question ah there we go well, well that's pretty there unique then because you've done that like around 14 years ago mm, yeah 2006 2006 yeah, so yeah. that was pretty cool like to come back and actually do it a bit quicker again 14 years later yeah, I actually, when I did it, I said to my husband, I know how to do it better now, but I never, ever want to do it again. And I didn't. I really, really didn't. And uh, obviously, officially, it got broken two years later. Let's just say unofficially, I won't go into that. But officially, a bit like Dan's, you know, Andy River is trying to break a record that is difficult, let's just say. But anyway, so... Uh, I kind of didn't want to do it and it just sat there and sat there and nobody was attempting to break it and it just sat there and it really annoyed me. So I kind of thought, well, I'm, I'm past it now. You know, I'm not the athlete I used to be. I'm not as fast as I used to be, but it just sat there and I thought, I know I could still break that record, even though I'm not as fast as I used to be because I've got the knowledge of having done it. And nobody can tell you that knowledge. It's, uh, people always ask me, how do I do it? How do you do this? You can't tell people. You've got to experience it to understand your own body on how to do it better. Because how I do it would be completely different to how you do it or how Dan does it. And having done it, I now know how to do it better. And I kind of thought, well, I'm going to have one last crack at this. And I kind of, it was trying to how to approach the husband to start with, just saying, well, I actually do want to do this again. <laughs> and then finding the crew, because uh, it's, it's hard to find crew to that understand you and will do. I don't need the crew for me. I need the crew for the world record. 
and people don't think I don't think people understand that. They just think I need a big crew because all this pampering that I need, and I don't need pampering. All I need is food and a bed. And I could actually easily run it the way Dan did with just me and the husband. And I could easily do it that way. But the record purposes, you have to have all this data collected, evidence collected, photographs, you know, ignoring the Garmin and the tracker things. Photograph. I think there's over 300 photographs, about 250 videos, a logbook that's over 850 logs in it. Uh, I can't remember how many pages of witness statements they collected uh, en route. And that is what takes all the time. Um, and prep from the crew and they have to they're not allowed to do more than four hours they have to have a break so you've got to have two witnesses on duty doing all that lot and you know and that's what takes all the time so anyway yeah so we decided to do it again and uh and yeah I really wanted to break 12 days because that was my original goal to break 12 days and I did it in 12 days 16 hours and whatever so the goal was to break and I had a schedule written to break 12 days uh things when I had that issue of getting lost and uh, at night time and very tired state and doing all those extra miles both those happened at the same time the same block of running and uh, so I had to negotiate around a bridge that had been condemned get lost in a building site which I ended up in in the middle of the night which is me nobody with me and the uh, husband going crazy not knowing how to get to me because I'm in the middle of nowhere according to the tracker and uh, but anyway I retraced my steps so I kind of that held me up a little bit and things started going downhill after that and when I saw Andy personally I said no I'm still going to break 12 days 65 miles a day for three days and I'm going to break 12 days and I was still on track when I saw Andy and I was quite confident that that was going to happen and then it was later that day it was that night and it was just gone nine o'clock I knew I was tired and you're fighting it all the time fighting it so hard uh, and it just got to a point where when you get so tired you You've probably experienced it as an ultra runner where you're kind of staggering around like you're drunk. And I was trying to focus, keep, I was on a road and keep going, keep forward, you know, just stepping sideways. Like with the, and it just got to a point where the crew that was with me, Izzy, always, if anything happened, it always happened with Izzy. But she was lovely because she's a police traffic officer. So she's really, really, <laughs> such one of the best crew ever. Sharon, are you okay? I think I'm really tired. And I never complained about, you know, you're tired, you're hurt. You don't complain about those things. You know, you just get on with it. You're here because you want to break a record. I'm just really tired. And all of a sudden, I felt her grab my arm. I thought, am I not standing upright? And I, I could feel that I was, like, not really going in a straight line. I just saw this grass bird. And I'll, just, I'll just sit down and have a, have a sit down. I just laid down and went to sleep. <laughs> Literally. And there was no budging me. I mean, I've never experienced it in my life. I'm just... The tiredness was so overwhelming. I literally just laid on the grass verge, went to sleep, and there was no budging me. And unfortunately, I had no idea of this at the time, but the first vehicle to stop was a police car. <laughs> What's it? I've got a bright yellow kit. What's this person laid on the grass verge and like, do we need the emergency services here? And poor old Izzy trying to explain. She's just tired. Because if this is normal, you just want to go to sleep on the grass verge. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea. It stood at my feet, and I had no idea who was talking about me. And she persuaded him, no, no, we've got a vehicle on the way back. And then they put me in the back of the van. And I don't know, it kind of, I know what happened, but, you know, like you can't quite put it in context. And all I remember was being dragged out again. Right, here's the map. You've got to go three more miles and then you've got to stop because there's a canal after that. We don't want you falling in the canal. And this was in Taunton. Like, Where's the road? And like, oh, I don't even know where, where I'm going. And I was like, 
I just couldn't do it. And in the, in the end, the husband just got so fed up. Well, let's just go back to bed and have the rest of the night sleeping then. And I just, I just couldn't do anything. So I lost like nine, ten hours that night. And they put me back to bed and got me up at five o'clock in the morning. At which point, I knew what had gone on, but I'd lost so many hours that night that, you know, I knew 12 hours. And I got up in the morning thinking, I'm not going to break 12 days. And it's like, now you've got to go another night, another day. And when you've got three days to go, and now you've got four days to go. That was just so hard, so uh-huh. depressing. And it really got me down. I mean, I knew the world record was going to go, but still, you're not going to get the goal. And, and that really, it was just it became so hard from that point onwards. It just, everything was a struggle. Uh, and I don't think I ever recovered from that night. And I, I continued to lose so many hours after that. And yeah, I took four hours, 40 minutes off the record. So, and it was about just over five hours quicker than I'd done it previously. So not bad for the age I was, you know, it was, uh, yeah. But, but it wasn't. you can tell a little, like you're happy and delighted with that but a little bit of disappointment you didn't break the 12 hours yeah. and you were capable of it oh, yeah. but that was your goal yes. and you're very it was. you're a very goal driven person aren't you I, yeah I learned this very early on I didn't realise what goal setting was if I go back to my history when I my first ever goal and I didn't realise it was a goal back then was to run the London Marathon and I actually started running I couldn't. it took me three weeks to run one mile without stopping that's how unfit I was many years ago and by the time I got yeah, the time I got to the London Marathon, the, the longest I'd ever run was 17 miles. And to me, to run in 26 miles non-stop was a challenge. You know, I didn't think I could, well, it's not that I didn't think I could do it. It was a challenge to run it. So when I did my first London Marathon, the goal was to run it and run it. I didn't care, times didn't mean a thing back then, you know. I didn't know what, it couldn't care less whether it was six hours, seven hours. It was just wanted to run it. I had no context of time. My goal was to run for 26 miles, and I did run for 26 miles and didn't stop. That was the goal. I did it in about four and a half hours um, and achieved my goal. And then I've got no reason to run anymore now. I've done the London Marathon, and it was like there's no reason to go out training anymore because I trained for the London Marathon, and now I've done it. And I, and I lost my way. I just didn't know what to do, you know. I've done the London Marathon, and I actually stopped running. And it took a while before, well, okay. I was at half marathon now, I go and do that. So I started running again just to do the odd event here and there. But it just didn't have that same incentive. And then I realised I need a goal, you know. And I actually started university and uh, then I learned what goal setting was. Oh, you've got to set a big goal, you know, long-term goal, a medium-term goal, short-term goals. Then I realised what goals were. So a whole life since then really has been goal-driven, exactly what you're saying. And it's like, without a goal, there's no reason to train. And I always remember in that university assignment back in 1994, what is your biggest goal ever, your biggest dream? I actually wrote it down in 1994 in an assignment at university. Well, the longest thing you can do in Great Britain is to run the length of it. Uh, every year they'll become a world record holder, but how many people break world records? So I wrote it down in 1994. I want to break the world record by running from Lansing to John O'Groves. Didn't know how far it was. Didn't know who, who even had the record. And I wrote it down. And that's why eventually that became my dream goal. I actually wrote it down. And it took me 12 years to achieve it back then. And then, yeah, another 12, 13 years later to do it again. <laughs> but it is a, it's, a very, it's a very powerful thing, isn't it? A piece of pa- mm. paper and a pencil. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a bit and, of a backstory to that as well, which I think is very important for people listening in who are very much in the similar situation. Like, um, because somebody had bought you a pair of the runners, you know, to do the London Marathon to begin with, 
and you said there yeah. three weeks it took you to run a mile um, yeah. what age were you then oh heck um well i did the marathon in 1986 so i would have been 23 about 23 i'm sure yeah. no experience in running beforehand or any sort of athletic absolutely none whatsoever if you do know about my background, I didn't have a sporting background. I didn't have a supportive family. Uh, I left home at a young age, uh, lived in a one-room bedsit. Um, pretty depressing life, really. Uh, became a bus driver. I don't know why. Um, but, yeah, I just I didn't run at all. I come from Cambridge and used to bike to school, bike home. But other than that, when you're 17, you get your first car, bike goes away and never did no, any action. No direction, whatsoever. no real direction, no real purpose no. in life. Just no. No. you're just hitting that clock machine really in and yeah. out sort of thing like yeah. and just days yeah. passing by without even noticing yeah and it, it, it rings true for quite a lot of people though doesn't it and running yeah. is something then that all of a sudden gives you this sort of purpose and direction and especially when you bring into it the goal setting aspect of that and all of a sudden you've got really purpose and then you really yeah. know what's ahead of you in that year and it, it gives you some something to work towards there were several sides to that. You know, one was I wanted to run the London Marathon. I'd seen it on TV. And I think the other one was me as a person. Um, I wasn't a person. I didn't feel like a person. I was so, I was a very withdrawn person. I am an introvert. I'm a very introverted person. And I was incredible. I had no social skills. You know, my, uh, my home life was poor. And so I didn't communicate with people. I was the loner at school. I was that person. And even when I went to work, I'd do my work and I'd get home. And that's probably why I'm still the way I am, that I like being on my own. Isolation is actually quite good. I don't have too many issues with it. <laughs> but uh, it's, I think that side of it is like I couldn't communicate. I can communicate now. But when I was like, you know, in my early 20s, I couldn't communicate. You know, I just didn't have anything to talk about, you know. Oh, they're all talking about where they went, what they did. I had nothing. I just went home every night. I came out. I didn't have friends. I didn't have a social life. So when they were talking about it, I couldn't talk because I had nothing to say. But when I started running, oh, wow, Sharon, you were a runner. Well, not quite, but yeah, <laughs> I was training to do the London Marathon and it was something to talk about. Oh, and like you did the London Marathon. How did you do? And people used to start talking to me because I'd done a run. And it was like I now had a conversation. I'd become a person. And it's strange, but that's what it done for me. It's like a different side to how you become a person. And then, okay. Once I lost my way a bit after London, I then found the new a new race up where I live now. But um, you know, the challenge to run another marathon, it wasn't a challenge because I knew I could do it. So I had to find a different challenge. And I, I loved when I was doing the training. You know, I did that. Took me three weeks to do that first mile, and then I had to do two miles. And I love that feeling of running further than I'd ever run before. So once I'd done the marathon, okay, I've done that. I had to find something new, and this fifty miler popped up where I live. Uh, around the North York Moors on the crosses called the crosses 54 miles well there's a challenge can you run 54 miles so that then was my next goal can you run 54 miles and I did and I come third I got lost several times and come third lady my god if I hadn't got lost I could have maybe won a race you know like me there's a four and a half hour marathon run that comes probably about 10,000 in the London marathon and you don't think about winning and uh, yeah, and then again, the following year, a hundred miler, long distance walkers association do a hundred miler every year in a different place. And in 1993, it came to Great Aitham, just down the road from where I live. I just had to do a nice round figure, a hundred miles. And 
by then I was getting a bit of a reputation winning a lot of the local races, uh, marathon distance in build up to this. And, you know, 500 people did that event. And again, I had no context of time for 100 miles. I, you know, it just didn't mean a thing to me. It's just, can you complete 100 miles? I did it in 25 hours and 15 minutes and come fifth of the 500 people. And then, okay, I'm not too bad at this. Like, the people then tell me you beat international runners. And that really was the start of me being what I call an ultra distance runner. And it, that was 1993. And in 1994, I entered my first ever 100K race, 24 hour race. But not just any race, they were both the national championships. And I took gold at both <laughs> and got immediate selection. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was born in 1994. <laughs> but that was amazing, like, because there's not too many people have um, won both the 100K and the 24-hour national championship. No, I, I am the, the only person to win both races in the same year. I think a few people have probably won both, but not in the same year. And it was on my debut as well. That was what the, the thing was about that. I made my debut to it, both at that event, those two events, and, you know, the first one was quite good because nobody knew who I was. And like, it was actually a selection race. I, I, I'll always remember it. It was uh, in Greenwich in London and it was laps, laps, round and round and round. And Fraser Clyde was there, who was a really good Scottish marathon runner. And all the papers and all the hype was about Fraser Clyde stepping up as his super marathon runner to the 100K. And uh, on all the other runners that were in the race, because it was a selection race for the world championships. If you won the gold medal and got under nine hours for a female, you would be selected for the world championships. And uh, I kind of, you know, I knew I could break nine hours, but could I win it? Because there was other international athletes there, but I wasn't an international. No, I was just one of the names on the list. I wasn't even considered, you know, nobody knew who I was. And uh, I always remember doing the race, finishing it, and like beating all these international athletes. And uh, well, I say all, there wasn't many there, but beating the international athletes, winning the race, eight hours, 42, crossing the line. And you don't know how the process works. You know, you're new to the sport, new to selection. John Legg was a selector back then. And uh, I literally crossed the line. And within 10 seconds, he was there asking me if I wanted to run in the World Championships. And I'm just sitting there. This is me who did a four and a half hour marathon. I've just done my first ever 100K race. And I've gone to the World Championships. You know, it's just beyond belief, absolutely beyond belief. And uh, I couldn't wait to get the newspapers the next day because there was lots of media around. And I picked up this, I think it was the Times the next day, all about the national championships. Great big picture of Fraser Klein and this superb marathon runner who dropped out at 50K. This great big article on him. And then the very last sentence, in the female race, Sharon Gator won the world, won the uh, national championships and we'll go on to better things. One sentence in this great, uh, I thought it was a story of my life. But the story goes on. I actually went to that championship race, got selection, and so did Fraser Klein, even after dropping out at 50k. What happened? I was the first British athlete again, beat, you know, we there was a team there, but I, I was the first British athlete to finish, I think, about sixth place overall. Fraser Klein dropped out, never to be seen again. <laughs> you know, you, you did touch on something there, though, like, because there is, like, male ultra running or running in general get all this hype and get all the press and all of that good stuff like and women have slowly but surely crept up and are kicking their asses now like but it's there is a that balance still isn't there you know it's coming more and more the last couple of years you're starting to see it more and maybe it's just that we're just that the press are starting to open the door to that a little bit but to get 
that was a perfect example to get you know this huge <laughs> big half the page yeah. and then one sentence about Sharon Gator who was an amazing story because you know she was a, an unknown coming into this sort of distance <laughs> yeah. and she actually won it like that is that's yeah. a front page story um <laughs> do you think that it is changing slightly well, I've seen it over many, many years. And a thing you, you touched on right at the start when you talked about Dean Canasius and saying about, oh, is it just the same people that are doing it? You know, when I first started ultra running in 1994, let's just say, there was hardly any races here. You know, you more or less had to go abroad to get any races. There was only maybe 100k race and maybe one or two 24-hour races. And now you look at how many races there are and the plethora of so many different races there really is an awful lot more ultra races and an awful lot more ultra runners. I'm a sports scientist too. Those facts that back that up. It really is a big sport now and a challenge for most people because the marathon isn't the challenge. But when it comes to males versus females, it's it's a difficult story. I mean, the male it always is dominated by males, but um, that doesn't bother me. And that's not why I do things or why I don't do things. Um, there's many a female that's won a race outright, including myself. It is nice. Though. Um, uh, it's nice it's not it's, it's always <laughs> nice to beat the men yeah yeah it, it often is a challenge and that what makes sometimes that is what makes it a challenge i always remember when i did seven days on a treadmill the challenge wasn't to break the female record the challenge was to break the men's world record which is never done in athletics and yes i've done it well more than one occasion i might add but uh yeah i think we do get reasonably good coverage now and i think some of the really brilliant female runners out there are the people that have done it you look at the world championships last year courtney courtney uh, it's just absolutely staggering performance uh it's unbelievable yeah. what she's done and i always remember back in um 2011 lizzie hawker winning the commonwealth 24 hours and beating all the men and yeah, luckily she did get the the highlight of that. And okay, John Parr's being Welsh and winning the the old medal in in Wales was uh, pretty good too. Um, but yeah, occasionally it takes outstanding athletes to actually make people look at the women. Um, and often we don't get classed in a race around. We do get classed jointly in the race. You know, your position is your position in the race, and not first female. You might be fifth overall or whatever. Um, it doesn't really bother me, you know. I do. I don't do races for the recognition I get, as you can tell, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, it doesn't really bother me whether we get the recognition or not. I do a race because I want to do a race, or I do an event because I want to do it. I don't do it for recognition or anything that goes with it. I, do, I love that story of entering, you know, the hundred k in the twenty four hour and like being an unknown. I, we had a uh, Aoife Mundoon on the podcast a couple of weeks ago she's an irish runner she's only been running maybe a couple of years in long distance and she broke the irish 24-hour record in athens this year wow and a couple of other irish runners like louise smart that we've had on which have only just um got into running you know sort of long distances two or three years ago and they were the same like running lamppost to lamppost like trying to build up a mile over a couple of weeks and all of a sudden like you know they're national champions like louise was uh, the national champion as well in the 24 hour in belfast and it sort of reminds me like you know if Jimi hendrix didn't pick up the guitar or paul mccartney or john lennon didn't pick up a pen you know people have got something really good and special inside them sometimes you know they they just don't try enough things to work out what they're really good at and like if that person hadn't given you that pair of running shoes for london this you know you may yeah. never have discovered who you were yeah, I totally agree with that. And even when I started my ultra distance career and 
like I said, that, that first one where that where I did win them two national championships, the first one they didn't know who I was. The second one I was called Dark Horse of the event when when they had the preview of the twenty four hours. Sharon could be the dark horse of this event. And yeah, I did eventually go on to I think it was third place overall in the race and got ranked number seven in the world that year. So I really did make my stamp in nineteen ninety four. But my story I think with that is I think there was even back then I used to say there's many more people like me out there that can do the distance and probably can run much much better than what I can but they're not brave enough to attempt it because it's a scary distance you know you stand on the start line and some of these things I've done and think what you're going to do it's scary and I, I think that puts people off thinking they can't do it but if you don't challenge yourself you never know if you can do it that very first 50 mile where I stood at the start line god you know I've only ever done, I hadn't gone over the marathon distance and suddenly I'm going up to 50 miles and then once you've done 50 miles you go up to 100 miles Oh, I've got to go through the night. Will I fall asleep? What will happen? How do I eat? How do I drink? And there was no big information out there. There was no ultra distance coaches out there. You just had to go and do it. And that was part of the experience and the challenge, really. And I think if people can get over that fear of the challenge and go out and do it, I always said there's many a good athlete out there that just don't, it's too scary to actually try it. Um, and I was, I was not scared of the distance I like the challenge and I think that's why I did it and those that do step over that boundary try it and realize they can do it and can do it quite well those are the athletes that really really come through um, and I said that years ago there's loads of people that can do it they just don't do it but there wasn't the opportunity again if I look back to when I started 1994 there wasn't all these races along the Pennine Way the West Highland Way you know the Cleveland Way all these things they didn't exist back then uh, and people think that because it used to be a small community Oh, surely you've done this race, Sharon, because you're an ultra runner. Well, years ago, I could say, yes, I know every race in the world, probably. But now, I don't even know half the races. There's so many out there, and I can't possibly do all of them. And, uh, yeah, the bucket list doesn't get smaller. It gets bigger. (laughs) No, I can relate to that as well, because when I'm interviewing people and I'm sort of diving into what they've done, I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. That looks interesting. So you're interviewing people from Sweden or from Denmark and places like that, and all these amazing races that start bubbling to the surface. And that's one thing I love and I try and sort of draw out in the podcast as well is new ideas for people. Um, people have blamed me for them almost getting divorced. And I keep <laughs> throwing my, throw my name out in the middle of um, marital disputes. Like, But like 1994 then, that obviously put you into the limelight um, and you started running for GB. You had a great career, like 17 years running for Great Britain. What was the highlights of that? So many. Well, yeah, um, yeah. I think the the first one was just scary. Again, like you got the British best, but you don't feel as though you're a British athlete. And even though you're lining up with everyone else, it was just in awe of everybody else. I think, and uh, it was just an incredible experience that very first one. And then to come sort of sixth place, it was like, well, could I actually get a medal? And the second one, I actually stood on the podium as a team medal, along with you know somebody who was my hero to it was Eleanor Robinson and uh, Lynn Harding and we stood on that podium and uh, bought the silver medal home and you know it's one thing to run for your country it's another to stand on the podium I did stand on the podium several times but I think the best one really that stands out for me was the Commonwealth Championships you know we we do all these races and nearly all my races I had to run abroad because there wasn't any races in Britain and it took till 2009 they had the first ever Commonwealth Championships and it was actually running Great Britain. 
And of all the races I've done, I've never run in Great Britain. And that was the joke of it. You know, I've actually put this international vest on and I've come to the UK and we're going to run in King Keswick of all places. And it was a, new, a different challenge because I knew there'd be people there to go and support me, which I don't normally have. You know, when you do the world championships, it's there's no, you know, you don't, you're very focused, but you don't have uh, friends supporting you out there. It's just the actual crew that you need for like giving you food and drinks. And this time he was on this one mile loop with all friends coming to spectate and watch and local people coming to spectate and watch. And that was actually a distraction for me. And I had to say to Bill at the start, I said, you know, again, it's this awful thing, but I stay really focused and I don't wave at people. Wave, I do high fives at people and talk to people. I just get on with the job in hand. And some of the friends that are new would come and say, sorry, but apologise in advance because I'll be so focused. I actually won't smile at you. I won't talk to you and I'll carry on running. But I'll hear you. If you're cheering me, I'll hear you. But please, I won't acknowledge you. I felt awful again in saying that. And I remember doing the race and, and we had a schedule written down how far I should run each hour. It was roughly 10K an hour. So by 12 hours, I should be on 120K. And uh, I remember getting there to 119K. I've lost a kilometre. That's because of the distractions. Because I did actually put my hand up and wave at a few people um, out of acknowledgement. But then through the night, you know, I picked it up and I finished with my PB, which was 226K. And I won the gold medal. And it was so nice that the first ever international on home soil and I took the gold medal and I think that will always remain so good because it's the only race I could have ever done in front of my friends that came to see me and I did actually win it and take the gold medal so that of all always stays quite high in terms of my highlights because it was on home soil you know um another one that was really uh poignant to me was uh, in Taiwan I went to the World Championships in Taiwan, a 24-hour race. I'd been to Taiwan before, and I hate to say, but I hate Taiwan. Earthquakes and spiders and snakes are my, <laughs> my memories of Taiwan. And, I mean, I'm talking about spiders that are less, twice the size of your hand, you know, that are just dangling above you. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, and the earthquakes, I mean, oh, I won't go there. But anyway, so I'd experienced this. And when I went to Taiwan for the second time, I didn't, some ways I didn't want to go to Taiwan and uh, UK athletics were playing games and they weren't going to select people because it was too expensive to send athletes out there. And they made the criteria, which was just beyond belief. Basically, there'd only be about six athletes in the world championships if every country had the criteria that UK had back then. And uh, so on principle, I thought, well, I want to do a 24 hour race. I can't run in the world championships because Great Britain won't select anyone. So I'm going to pay to enter the open race and go there anyway. I literally arrived the night before to Taiwan with a great big hours difference, literally because I didn't want to stay in Taiwan. I hated it so much. Uh, I remember starting the race at 10 o'clock in the morning, feel like I just wanted to fall asleep because I hadn't slept the night before because of the time difference. And I literally just on the start line wanted to curl up and go to sleep. And anyway, I got to halfway through the race. It was the most appalling race ever. It was monsoon conditions. I mean, the ramps were floating down the the roads and, and a twisty turny course half the field was decimated I didn't have any crew I was just there on my own I got to 12 hours into the race and I just sat down and cried my eyes out what an idiot why on earth did you come here and I just didn't know what to do with myself and the, the joke of it was I didn't know how to get back to the accommodation because I couldn't read the hieroglyphics on the transport to actually get me back home so I thought well even if I drop out I can't even get back to the home when it wasn't a hotel it was a school that I was staying in I thought well, I'll probably have to stay here to have somebody to help me get me back. Anyway, so I sat there crying my eyes out. And one of the, um, well, he's, he was a British athlete that's now 
in, America, in Australia, um, Mick Francis. So anyway, I was chatting to him and uh, just he was wondering why I was a little bit upset. I said, oh, no, it's just me being stupid. I'll get my sister to come and look after you, he said. No, no, I'll be fine. But anyway, his sister came across and she says, well, what would, what would your crew normally do in this scenario? I said, well, I wouldn't normally be sitting there trying my eyes out. But um, no, normally I speak to my husband and he always puts a smile on my face. And I didn't have a mobile phone or anything like that. And she gave me her mobile phone. This, I can't remember what year this was. And uh, I rang Bill, and out the blue, he answered. And I'm blubbering my eyes out. I can't do this. I'm just so proud of you for even trying, Sharon. Put the phone down. Smile on my face. I went, I went off running again because I can't go back. I went running. I got uh, sixth place in the world championship, having had an hour out being stupid. And half the field was decimated. And you know what? I come sixth in the world, first in the open race. I got a medal, a trophy for being a first in the world world championships. And you know what? It was half a case short of the UK Athletics qualifying time. Jeez. And then I went back to UKA. You know, it, here's the proof. Your criteria. I wouldn't even got to that championships. And I come sixth in it. So, um, but anyway, that was another story. That was two <laughs> fingers yeah, up. That, <laughs> two fingers up that, as well. Like. <laughs> that's it. So those are the two. Those are the ones that are special. That first ever medal, the Commonwealth gold, and that non-UK athletics um, performance that got me a, a first place. I won the World Open Championships, the World Championships, and uh, yeah, class. that was a good. You talk. You touched a wee bit there about um, you changed your career path. You're a bus driver. Um, you went back to education and the, then mm. you went to work in sports science. Do you think that helped at all in any way or form the learning that you got through that? Oh, that that was the best thing I ever did. I mean, I was a bus driver. That was literally just a job. Um, just needed to pay the wages and that's all it was to pay. I just went in and I used to be, my first ever job was a civil servant. And because I was so quiet, so withdrawn, I used to work harder than anybody else, but I couldn't gain up uh, up the ladder because I didn't have the communication skills. And so I just left because I was so frustrated. Everyone else was getting promotion and I didn't. So I thought, well, I'm not going to sit in this job. So I just became a bus driver. I thought, well, I'm in a dead-end job. I might as well go to a dead-end job. And it was just something different. Uh, out of the blue, I didn't have no intention of being a bus driver the rest of my life. And then I moved up to the northeast and the uh, three or two sides finally started to jump on my bus and beat the life out of me to take my takings. That's not a negative. That's a positive because I told you I never wanted to be a bus driver the rest of my life. So it then made me change direction because, OK, I don't go to work and get beaten up. And my money pinched off me. And I had this little battle where they wouldn't put kind of other buses had like a protection in like a, a screen and our bus company hadn't done it. I'm not coming back unless you put a screen in there to protect us. And uh, so I had this six months where I couldn't do anything. I, I couldn't get another job, couldn't go back to work. And so I kind of looked at what can I do to do something different? And the sports science degree come up at Seaside University where I live. Oh, I've got to do that, you know. So that gave me the time. And then it was getting the qualifications to go there. So I did an access course. And then it was 1994, this big year of 1994, I started my sports science degree. Now, I went there to do it because... Back then, again, there was no coaches in ultra-distance running. Everybody knew how to train a marathon runner, but nobody knew how to train an ultra-distance runner. So I never had a coach. There wasn't coaches out there. So I thought the easiest way is to teach myself. So I actually went to university, okay, to get a degree, but to understand more about my sport and everything in that sports science degree, I applied to my own sport. And that's where I said I learned this thing about goal setting. But I also learned exercise physiology. What does training do to your body? What is the bare minimum weekly mileage you should do to get that economy? 
what about nutrition? And I learned all these things and I put them into my training. I wrote my own training programs. I analyzed them as to what went right, what went wrong, what we could do differently. So really that has been the foundation of what's made me because I understood my sport and how to train me better than anybody else could. And then, okay, it turned full circle. Initially, I went into sports therapy where I could actually do my international career around my my working job. I've always worked, always, always worked. You know, I've never been a sponsored athlete. You know, I think that's normal for ultra-distance runners. Um, and eventually, you know, I used to, I was a sports scientist. I'm now in the business school, believe it or not, just a sidetrack to that, but personal effectiveness, which I actually kind of really enjoyed quite more. Um, but, yeah, so I've... I've trained in that and I've actually used that information all my life and that really was the key that degree made me understand how to train and understand me so much better yeah I think it's how you applied it as well though because you were writing down what worked well and what didn't and that's the problem isn't it when you go into these longer endurance events because I can run a marathon distance and I can dial in my nutrition really well and it's quite sugar-based and I try to move away from it but it doesn't work so the sugar base does Mm. work so do it but when I got further to eight hours and then 12 hours you know my stomach starts going pear-shaped and it's not the distance when I go into a longer distance race it's not the distance I count it's how how many hours I get before my stomach goes <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's I'm, common. I'm at that early stage of learning you know and it's not it's not even like 60 or 70 miles worries me it's like oh happy days now I've got to 12 12 hours now I've got to 15 hours and it's just learning yeah. how to apply that to yourself that's the key thing yeah. isn't it and again, it's very different between individuals. What works for me won't work for you. I got one, one of the best bits of information I was given. It's in 1994 again when I went into that very first 24-hour race. And I told one of my lecturers at, at university that I'm going to do a 24-hour race. And he, he told me one little piece of advice that I took on board, and it's, I've used it ever since. Write down everything you eat and drink. And because I had my husband there crewing for me, and everything I eat and drink, record it. Let's just say he didn't have to do much recording in that first 24-hour race because I'd barely ate a thing in 24 hours. And when we sat and looked at it, I think I'd eaten about 2,500 calories over 24 hours. And okay, I think you need to eat more. And the second race I did, it, I kind of looked into it in quite sort of scientific terms. You've got to have 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Doesn't matter whether it's food or drink form. And uh, so the next race I went into, my second 24-hour race, I tried to stick to 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour. I lasted for about eight hours, at which point I couldn't face another piece of food or drink. And I, all I felt like doing was throwing up. I've been that idea and that it went out the window. But I'd still detailed everything. And I didn't eat anything for probably the next six hours because I felt so sick. Um, and then you've got to find a different strategy. In the end, sports science doesn't work. For, the, for something so long, sports science doesn't work. What you've got to do is what foods go with you. And how often do you need to eat them? And I've come up with a very simple principle that's worked ever since for me. And you need to keep something in your stomach because if your stomach's empty, the gases build up, the acid builds up, and then that makes you feel sick. Mm. So you can't go with nothing, but you need something. And the simple principle I use that does work for a lot of people is one item of food per hour. And it doesn't matter what that item of food is. It could be half a banana. It could be quarter of a sandwich. It could be half a yogurt. You might be one of those lucky people that can eat mountains, but just having something in your stomach that agrees with you um, and put one item in you. And we worked with that principle most of my 24-hour career, and that worked. 
I was allowed more than one item, but a yeah. minimum. So if I hadn't eaten in an hour, Bill would prompt me, Sharon, you haven't eaten anything for the next that last hour. And he'd offer me something, even a couple of grapes, two grapes. Okay, I'll eat two grapes. But that has worked for me. Perfect. What about the training blocks then? Because you touched on that as well. Yeah. Um, again, again, through university, I learned it took me, it was probably up until the second year where I actually started learning more about training techniques and something called periodization, which was quite new back then. Uh, it's obviously very common nowadays, but periodization in 1990s was quite new. Uh, and a book called Bumper that I kind of really focused on. And it was kind of finding out a block of periodization that worked for me. And there were so many different blocks. You could yeah, hard week, hard week, easy week, hard week, easy week, two consecutive harder weeks, three consecutive harder weeks, four consecutive harder weeks. And it was finding out the balance. And I had a trial and error program that I, I, I trained for a program for four months, four or five months, do an event, then go back, what worked well, what didn't work well, adapt the schedule. And uh, I learned very early on, it didn't take long to learn that three consecutively harder weeks followed by one easy week worked for me. And I've used that even now. That still works for me. Some people can't do that because the third week is very hard. But you've got to overload the body for it to train and adapt. And I'd start off quite easy, maybe 70 miles a week, 80 miles a week, 90 miles a week, and an easy week was 50 miles. So I'll come back down to 50. But then you've got to adapt and progress. So instead of 70, 80, 90, it might be 80, 90, 100, and then you come back to your 50 miles a week. Then the next block had to be harder. So 90, 100, 110. And that kind of worked really well. And I actually got up. And then what is the maximum mileage you should go up to? And uh, I eventually I got up to 130 miles a week, at which point I realized I was just tired all the time. And I knew that was too much. But you had to go there to get there mm. to know it was too much. And I think most of my career is circled around the, the 100 mile a week mark. So it might be 90, 100, 110 and, and sort of peppered around that figure. So roughly 100 miles a week was the ballpark figure. Yeah. Um, but within that week, so even though it's, that's the weekly mileage, you then have to structure it. Again, this is where university helped me. What do you do if you're doing 100 miles a week? How do you structure that 100 miles per week? Well, 5% of it must be intensity. That is speed work, hill reps. And so twice a week I would do intense work and only count the actual reps of it. You know, if you're doing 800 meter reps, it's just that 800 meters or however many 800 meters count. Or if you're doing a 200 mil meter hill sprint, it's the hill sprint part, not the rest of it. So 5% of it was intensity work two sessions a week one was a hill rep one was an interval session there would be a sustained run which is what people call a lactate threshold run so that could be somewhere around six seven miles at just below threshold pace um and then there would be obviously the long runs and then there would be the recovery runs so each week was very very structured around those things and then towards the last eight weeks of building up to event there would be what i call specificity so, okay, those weeks are the periodization weeks where you're building up the uh, base foundation, getting fitter. Then you've got to do some specificity. So if you're going to do a 24-hour race, well, doing 400 meters, 800 meter reps isn't like doing a – so you have to do something specific. So I would do three back-to-back -back long runs. So I might go out for 30 miles, three consecutive days. Um, there's my back-to-back -back long runs. Um, and that's why weekly mile is easier to do three days. And that, but that is specificity training the energy systems to be able to do that. 
So that has formed the basis of nearly all my training. So the periodization is on a weekly basis, a four-week cycle, and then there will be some very specific races to build me up to the actual races. Yeah, that's class. Like, So the, the key things that sort of jump out there for me are trial and error, reflection, and then at the end of that, I'm not even going to try and pronounce specification, or, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very much relating your training to the job in hand that you're going to do. So if it's a, a big mountain run then you know you need to get the ascent in or the descent in that you're going to replicate the race that you're doing or the 24 yeah. hours and like long distance runs over 40 50 miles like those back-to-back long distance races like you have to relate your training to what the actual race is going to be but you do a lot of groundwork mm-hmm. there by the sounds but like you got your marathon time down to was it three hours seven minutes yeah yeah that was i never actually trained to do that that was just part of training i don't i've never trained and specifically done a marathon I wish one day I had because I, I possibly could have broken the three-hour mark. And it's my one thing. I never did break three hours. And uh, it's probably my one regret. I wish one day I'd have trained to have done a marathon and broke three hours because I was probably capable of it, but I never actually did do it. It's funny. <laughs> but, like yeah. when, you, when you become an ultra runner, then you start using marathons as training runs. <laughs> well, that's exactly that's That's my classic. That's, everyone trains to do marathons. I use marathons as training. That's exactly the words I use. <laughs> so you had a huge a huge career for Great Britain, hundred kilometers um eight hours, twelve minutes. That was absolutely phenomenal time, like for a PB. twelve hour best was one hundred and twenty eight kilometers. um you helped you carried the torch for the Olympic torch in two thousand and twelve. That must have been a very proud moment. It was it was and it was the way I was nominated, which was really lovely too. Um, obviously, somebody that I didn't even know nominated me um and that was what was so nice and I remember the person who nominated me I'd only very briefly met him in pure chance uh, the, the story goes I we always do a classic race here in the northeast uh up Captain Cook's monument on New Year's Day and I always have a battle with my husband we always have a handicap and the loser has to have a penalty and on New Year's Day we always used to run this Captain Cook's race and the loser had to treat the other one to a meal somewhere well, my husband lost that day and he never has any much imagination for like where to take me. And it was actually snowing, which was pretty bad. So um, we just went to a local um, uh, place for a meal, which happened to be called the Cross Keys. So we walked into this place on New Year's Day, snowing like crazy outside for a meal. And the barman just stood there and like bowed towards me. <laughs> What's going on here? You're Sharon Gator, aren't you? Oh, you're my hero. And this guy stood there in, in amazement that I'd walked into this place to, like, uh, go and have a meal. And uh, it was that guy that he, he, he was inspired to run his first ultramarathon by me, and he, he, he hadn't finished it. And then I walked in there, and that was his inspiration to try, this, uh, try and do a local ultra. And he actually nominated me, unbeknown to me. And that was a story, and then I got to meet him afterwards. And... Uh, and because he was local, I'd inspired him to run his first ultra. He tried it, actually failed. He did actually, he did actually go on to finish a 55-mile, I might add. And I actually went on to support him trying to attempt a 110-miler. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't achieve that one on that occasion, but uh, he ran the furthest he's ever run, which was about 75 miles, I think. So, uh, but, yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it was 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning when I actually carried the torch. And you think, well, there won't be anyone out there that time in the morning running along red car. And it was absolutely lined with people. And the amount of people that I didn't know that were in that field watching, taking photographs, people coming and knocked on my door and, and just wanted to take the torch. And the torch went everywhere. You know, luckily, because of the position I was in, 
it went to schools, it went everywhere. It's got to be one of the most touched torches ever because it, you know, you can inspire other people just by carrying it. Um, so yeah, it was a really lovely thing to to actually carry that. That's got to be one of the highlights of the career, like mm. carrying that torch and being in a possession of something that can inspire others. And uh, yeah, and that's what you use it for, you know, to to support. Like it, it's such an amazing story that we've heard. Like you know, from you really recolored your life through the support of ultra running. Mm. isn't it really like <laughs> after that then yeah. after after great britain and things like that happened which was absolutely amazing a brilliant career 17 years is an amazing time to be competitive at that level and you can tell how the sports science really really helped that giving you that structure and reflection and understanding yourself which changes as you grow older as well you have to adapt mm. and improvise all the time and because people's lifestyles are so different and what how you're feeling this month may be different next month. So it's important to monitor that and be in tune with yourself. And, but you went on to do a few crazy, crazy races then. Like, so Mark Cobain, we talked about the, um, the ultra, the high. And <laughs> I was absolutely amazed when he was telling me about this race. And when I actually posted his podcast last week, somebody went, posted up below, made a comment, said that this is coincidence. But I just, after watching a video with Sharon Gator doing that race, and I say no, no way I've got her on the podcast next week like so I went in and watched a video there a couple of days ago um, which is on Amazon Prime I think but that's just pure mental torture like 18,000 feet you climb to it's the pure altitude of it really isn't it it, it is I mean you know I've been out of many running for many years and once you kind of achieve a pinnacle where do you go so I kind of realized early on, instead of going, you know, I like this challenge going further. Well, it's only so how, how many hours in a, a week that I've got to run so far, you know. So it wanted to become more challenging. And, you know, like it was the Marathon de Sables that says it's the toughest race in the world. What a pile of rubbish. Uh, I had to go and do it to prove it wasn't the toughest race in the world. And it's certainly not the toughest race in the world. But what is the toughest race in the world? OK, I've run some extreme places, you know. Badwater claims to be the toughest race in the world. Yeah, that's pretty tough. And then they had this race called the High. So I've done hot, I've done cold, I've done deserts, I've done distance, I've done everything. I've never done altitude. So I like the challenge of like, okay, the Indian Army says it couldn't be done. Mark goes and does it. And he has to be British, doesn't he? You know, like the finisher of the High has to be British. You know what my challenge is, don't you? So it was like, okay. I actually did sign up to do it that first year with Mark, and it's the first year I had a really bad injury. Um, it actually wasn't a running-related injury, but it, it signed me off for the whole year, uh, about a good six months anyway. And uh, so I, I couldn't get to do the race. So I got to do it the second year, and then I had to go. Mark was the only finisher, and there was, I think, six or six or six of us possibly started it the year I did it. You had to be pretty good to even get to the start line. And I always remember landing in Lay. 12,000 feet and the first lecture we had well two uh, two planes last landed here last week and of those two planes two tourists died one was italian and one was french and they died within 48 hours this was just being at 12,000 feet and that was the first lecture we got well this is scary and the race itself if you want to ask me what is the toughest race in the world it is 100 percent the high there is no race harder than that. That is the hardest race I have ever done. I mean, Land's End Johnny Works is just enduring, but the high is hard. And it throws everything at you, absolutely everything. You have to be there for two weeks prior to the race to actually adapt to the, the altitude you're at. And 18,000 feet, 
I mean, the first time I went up there, I mean, there's so many stories about that race, but we got told the first day you get there, just sit, slow, sit, lay down and read a book. Don't go out. The second day you're allowed to go for a walk into town. And the third day you might be allowed to run. So the first day I walked into town. The second day I went for a run. You're not allowed to run yet. The third day I took a ride. We took, it was quite funny, but we took a, a car up to the high, the first peak of 18,000 feet. And I got Bill, hired a, Bill, a bike out for Bill. I ran 26 miles back down to the accommodation while Bill cycled it. And I didn't dare tell anyone because we weren't even allowed to go out running. <laughs> but the joke was the rest of the crew decided to go and hire a car just to experience 18,000 feet. So they went in the car to the top just to experience it and come back down. And what should they see on their way up? There's somebody running down. <laughs> so I got caught out running the marathon. Anyway, so that was my first experience. And what the first thing I learned was that I'm asthmatic and, alti and the altitude, the asthma pumps don't work because there's no pressure. So that was my first bugbear, and I was incredibly asthmatic during that race. Uh, and the pollution, the trucks, the convoys of trucks come by, 30 trucks at a time, kicking out black smoke. And because it holds in the atmosphere at 18,000 feet, that's what really triggered my asthma because car exhaust fumes are one of my bugbears. So my biggest challenge was negotiating and battling this, the fumes and uh, not getting asthma on top of everything else that you could get. And, yeah. It was like it, 220 kilometres, wasn't it, around about that? Yeah. It wasn't it a short was, race, like. Oh, no, it wasn't a short race. It was, yeah, at least two, yeah, two, two, two K, two, two, two K. That was right, yeah. Two, 140 miles-ish, something like that. Um, and two peaks over 18,000 feet. Um, and you're just living out the back of a car. You know, you have a support car and you live out the back of the car. Um, and, yeah, does does, it doesn't, I can't even begin to describe how hard that race is. It started okay. The first marathon was all uphill to, to 18,000 feet. Um, that was pretty much okay. But then what follows is 40 miles hairpinning downhill. You've experienced DOMS, but I tell you, there is <laughs> nothing to experience 40 continuous miles of downhill running. I was crippled at the end of that. I got to that point, which was about 60, 70 miles into the race. And I said to Bill, I, I was in agony. My shins were swollen, everything hurt. I felt sick the entire time. I could barely eat. And I said to Bill, I'm going to finish this race because I am never coming back here to do it again. And that was the incentive to finish it. At that stage, I was still second place in the race. Ray Sanchez, there was always a, it was always going to be a two-horse race in that one between me and Ray Sanchez. The rest of the field kind of weren't in it, let's just say. And I wasn't in a race. I just needed to finish the race. And uh, anyway, so we carried on. And Ray was quite some distance in front of me by this stage. And we got to the 100-mile point, And they force you into stopping at 100 miles and making you go to sleep. Now, I just endured the night where I'd staggered all over the place, nearly fell in the river. Uh, I'd endured the heat was uh, in the valley was really something like 40 degrees heat. And on the top, it's almost blizzard conditions because it's so cold. And then I got to 100 miles. It's just as daylight came and the sun came out. And I felt, right, I'm more alert now. And I got forced into sleeping for three hours. I'm not even tired now. I can't sleep. If you just told me three hours ago in the darkness, oh, no, well, you're having a compulsory three-hour stop. At which point, Ray had already left. I had to have this, endure this three-hour stop there. Well, there's no way I'm going to win it. But I'm going to finish the race. And I carried on. And I remember going up the next peak. And... All I remember thinking is how far is it to the top? Because it just hairpin, 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 hairpin. 
and you can't see the top and you just the breathing and this will give you an indication of how hard it is i was breathing harder than i was than i would be if i was doing a 5k race really puffing and panting like crazy and i was walking and my speed was one i can do 5k in 20 minutes it was taking me 20 minutes to walk one kilometer and i remember them coming back to me and said it's 10k to the top sham 10k well that's going to take me three hours to get to the top and that's all i remember thinking and that's how long it was going to take me three hours at 1k every 20 minutes and that's how hard it was and every kilometer i'm not kidding i had to get the car to drive 1k stop and i just sit on the bonnet and try try to get some breath back because i just sat there puffing and panting you couldn't get your breath back because the altitude was so hard but i'd stop try to get my breathing under control and then walk another kilometer and that's how i did the last 10 kilometers to the top the other side of the story goes they didn't want a race because racing at that conditions is going to really kill you. And I mean, kill you. Um, but what they told me is Ray Sanchez is now on the way down. He's nearly at the finish line. And all of a sudden, my husband glanced up. There's Ray Sanchez up there, a couple of hairpins ahead. But they're telling me he's on the way down. And that really, really got me. And the race they didn't want then happened. I reached the top and I could have touched Ray Sanchez on the back. I was that close to him at the peak. The, the person who made that film you saw, um, I'm trying to think, Barry, Barry Bolton, going crazy. Can't believe it. The second peak and like the first woman's going to overtake the first man and we're going to have a new leader right on the peak. And what happened? Well, we both had to have a medical and I was desperate for the toilet. I needed a number two and I really, there's nowhere to go on the side of a road, is there, in the position up here? And I knew there was a building at the top where I could go onto the toilet. So the medics were coming to me first because they said, Ray's not in very good condition. I can't say I was good, but Ray was actually worse. Who Do you want your medical first so you can get away? I thought, well, out of respect to Ray, I really need the toilet. So I'll go to the toilet, you give me his medical, and then I'll, I'll have mine second. Ray had no idea I was even right behind him, in touching distance of him. So they took him straight into the car for the medical. And I mean, it only takes five minutes. I went to the toilet. Come out from the toilet, Ray was already on his way down. I then had to sit and have my medical. There weren't a lot they could do because the, you know, the oximeters they put on your fingers to t yeah. test your uh, blood, your oxygen saturation. Didn't My hands were so swollen, they didn't work. So all he could do was take a pulse to see what my pulse was and sent me on my way. So I went chasing down like, oh, I'm going to catch Ray now, fuming. And I went tearing around and I caught Ray. Just as I caught Ray, he decided to have a rest in his car. And he was away with the fairies. He wasn't even, he was totally unaware of it. On the documentary, they tell me I overtook him while he was having a medical. He was not having a medical. I actually let him have his medical first. He just went for a rest in his car and I overtook him. Then you think it's so close to the half a marathon to go now. I hit a, hand, a landslide, the second one of the day. The landslide, it completely blocked the road. And yes. there was a, a, a digger thing pushing this landslide off the road. They're very common out there. He did not expect a runner to go climbing across the ground in front of him. Didn't even see me. And I had to jump across this landslide before the digger pushed me off the side of the mountain. But I weren't stopping because Ray Sanchez was behind me. My car couldn't get by. And I just carried on running. And I remember the last bit. I remember watching that documentary and watching me come back. And the first thing I see or hear really is the noise of me that I'm making. If you watched it, it sounds like I've got the hiccups. That is my breathing. <gasps> 
that's how bad I was. I was totally asthmatic. The doctor was going berserk. He wanted to stop and give me a nebulizer. I was having a nebulizer every four hours during the race because my breathing was so bad. And it had gone over the four hours. I wasn't stopping for the nebulizer because I wanted to get to the finish line and beat Ray. I got to the finish line. I thought my hands were held in the air, but they weren't. You couldn't even see me hold my hands up. All I remember thinking is, don't collapse. Try to be strong. Don't collapse. And somebody was pushing me upright. I got shoved in a car, at which point, okay, I think I'm going to be sick. So I opened, the doctor sitting one side, and I couldn't open the door. I'm banging the door. Open the door, open the door. At which point, the camera's like, great, we can see Sharon. So the camera comes in. I stick my head out and uh, throw up. Throw up blood, which is what the doctor didn't realise. And I'm not kidding. That race, probably, Ray was in a worse state. I was in a better state than Ray. And that took me at least six months to get over that race. I've never finished in such a bad state and taken so long to recover from a race ever. It is the world's toughest race. And I don't want to go tough. <laughs> so you came first in it anyway, so you don't need to go back. I broke Mark's record by about, I think, 11 hours. He did it in 48 hours. I did it in 37 hours. So I got my goal. So I don't ever have to go back. I finished it. I won it outright. And I broke Mark's record. That's absolutely yeah. class. <laughs> you have a long list of like wins and sort of like you've raced all around the world. Like, you know, the whole globe has been your playground, really. Um, and I could dive into every single one of them. Yeah, I'm conscious of the time. I'm consuming so much of your time. Like the one thing I do want to touch on is before we go, is the London Marathon and the 1,000 miles because we just, we just passed <laughs> we just passed the London Marathon. <laughs> but that's cla- that was class. So tell me about that. Yeah, that was just one of these crazy things. It was an opportunity and something very different. Uh, yeah, one it was 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours. Now, Captain Barkley done this many, many years ago when, you know, the history to ultras was pedestrianism. And people used to walk races. And Captain Barkley was one of these people that set this uh, great big wager up many, many years ago. And it was worth quite a lot of money to him back then. Um, and they used to have bets on him. Could he walk one mile every hour for a thousand hours? And it, it basically made him like financially by winning it. But that was his challenge to do it. And obviously things were very different back then. And he actually achieved this. And once he achieved it, he then went to war. Um and uh, Dave Bedford, in his wisdom from the London Marathon, uh, they decided, well, how, how tough are today's athletes? Can they replicate things what happened years ago? Because there was this thing, our oh, athletes are not as tough as what they were years ago. So he tried to replicate this. But instead of having the lovely new market he used to go walking up, we had to walk up and down the London Marathon road 38 times. As opposed to him doing it on his own, there were six of us on a tour bus, and that's how we had to live for six weeks, because a 1,000 hours is six weeks. So up and down the London Marathon, one mile every hour for six weeks. And the context of this is you're only allowed to walk one mile in every hour. So if you think there's 24 hours in a day, that's 24 miles a day. So the mileage is actually quite easy, 24 miles a day. The challenge comes when you have to do one mile in every hour. So at two o'clock in the morning, you've got to do one mile. At three o'clock in the morning, you've got to do one mile. And so it goes on. So you can see you don't get a decent night's sleep. Add to the fact that you're living with six other people on a tour bus walking up and down the London Marathon route with cars bibbing and traffic and everything else. That was the challenge. And so they had these six people. I was the first one they recruited and they used me to recruit the other five. You were mad, you see. (laughs) You were mad enough to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was was simple. That was the challenge. Oh, I wonder who... 
I can imagine that meeting how it happens. Oh, who be who could we get to do this with? Oh, it's Sharon Gayer, obviously. <laughs> that went without saying. Yeah. Oh, I jumped on it. I didn't. I didn't even hesitate. I didn't even hesitate. It was automatic. So yeah. But that was it. And uh, and it wasn't the challenge that I thought it would be. Um, it was actually quite easy. And I, I know that sounds probably patronising, but it was easy. Twenty-four miles a day. The reason that made it easy, like even this challenge I've just done of Cockbane 19, you know, 19 miles a day for 90, that was actually harder in some ways because I had to carry on working. Now, when you did the thousand miles, you actually, once you've done the, the mile in the hour, you just sat around reading for the rest of the day. Not the rest of the day, the rest of that hour. And then you got out and you'd done another mile. You could walk the mile. You could run the mile. It wasn't hard. And you very soon got in that routine, or I did anyway, I was probably the best at it is, okay, you could do one mile at the back of the hour, one mile at the front of the hour, which we all had to do, because don't forget, the bus has to move every time you get off. So we had to do it that way for everybody else. And you actually got about, I got about six broken hours of sleep per night. I could live off that. because wasn't really doing much. And it was actually easy. And towards the end of it, after about two, three weeks, when you realise this wasn't a hard challenge, it was just tedious, monotonous challenge, I then started going running every day on top of the miles, to actually get a bit of training in because you were only doing one mile at a time. And I remember the week before London Marathon, I actually ran 17 miles. While doing the challenge, I ran an excess 17 miles, including the one mile of the challenge. So when it came to the marathon, I knew probably where I'd be. Um, and yeah, so I haven't done a thousand miles, not slept for six weeks. The hour you finished, you then done the London Marathon and the two women beat the men. Yeah, so <clears throat> right, right at the end of the thousand miles then, about an hour late, you start the London Marathon. Yeah, but you ran yeah. it. In, what time did you run it? In? Like three thirty-four. Three hours thirty-four minutes. I couldn't remember that. It wasn't until that post came up. It actually came up. I knew it was over three and a half hours, but I couldn't remember the time. But somebody actually posted it and said, "Look, you've got incredibly consistent London Marathon performances." Oh, I'm surprised at that one because that was actually during the thousand mi- after the thousand miles, around three hours thirty-four minutes. So yeah, and I beat some of my club runners that are just trying to do it. So that's a, I felt rather awful at that, but yeah. Took me three hours forty five minutes, I think, <laughs> or three forty two to Did do it? London, <laughs> <laughs> and I had loads of sleep. Um, but you, you said it was easy there. But the, the challenge of that is how tedious and monotonous it is. Like you mentioned, you know, oh, the one thing about yeah. ultra running, there's two things that I'm really trying to learn. Number one is obviously the nutrition. The second thing is patience. And I think you mm. know it's really really hard to not think and just be patient with the process. And I think that's what's one of your main strengths is. And you talk about being like so isolated and, um, you know, being focused on the job in hand. And it really is that, isn't it? It is. But it's like now while we're in lockdown, this is actually quite a challenging time for me because I race every weekend and I use races to build up for races. And it's the same thing, goal setting. Now, in May, I should have been running across Hawaii, 250 miles across Hawaii. So obviously that goal's been taken away. I was going to do this summer, the easy version of the spine race in June, but that was um, the easy one, 268 miles. And I had a few other things, another 500-mile plan followed by another world record at the end of the year. That's the plan. Um, but all of those, partly possible world record at the end of the year, have gone to pop. So what do you do to focus and train now? And I'm, I'm struggling with that. And that's why I've done things like this, Cobain 19, because... There's no races. There's nothing to train for. And without that goal, you know, like my life has been goal setting. Without a goal, what do I do? So I was dithering around running five miles a day, seven miles a day, not knowing what to do with myself because there's nothing to train for, nothing to aim at. And without that goal, 
it's taken away my motivation. And that's why the 19, Cobain 19, was motivation for me to go and do 19 miles a day. Didn't matter how fast, how fast I did it, we're just doing 19 miles a day. And that's what I've got to do now I'm in lockdown. You know, you're on about patience. We don't know how long it's going to be before races are going to start up. And this is kind of a, you've got to find a different challenge and something that will motivate you. Um, and tedium, you know, I'm actually, it is tedious being at home every day, but I can live being at home every day as long as I can do my running and get outside. Okay, I would like to do go to different places. Tedium for me is doing running from the house every day and having to do the same old route out every day and running around the moors every day. I want to go somewhere different. That's why I race every weekend. So that is tedium and boredom. And you don't know when the outlet is because when is, it, is the world going to open up to racing? So, um, yeah, so I've had to just find different motivational factors. And, okay, Kobe 19's finished and instantly people have, like, emailed me, Facebook me with two new challenges, which you might have seen. And I've just signed up for one of them. <laughs> so I'm going to run across Tennessee, 100,000 K. Just a little challenge over the next few months. Um, yeah. Have you got as long as you want to do that? I'm actually going to share that today. Um, no, no, it's a, uh, it's a time limit on it. Um, but it's a, it's a generous time limit. I think you have four months. I think it's from the first or the second of May. I think the beginning of May till the end of August. It's a thousand K. If you want to be challenged by it, you can do a there and back, which is 2000 K. Lazarus Lake has sort of created this, hasn't he? He has. So it's a virtual sign-up. And I think the thing, yeah, it's nice that you've got a challenge to make you do the distance. And the other thing he's going to do, from what I can gather, is he's going to put um, a bit like a, there's a virtual jog one as well, where they're going to picture you in certain places in Tennessee, because I haven't been to Tennessee. Oh, so brilliant. he's going to picture you where you are. So imagine if he was doing the jog and, okay, you're now at the Seven Bridge or you're now at this place. Where he's going to put pictures of where you would be at that point in your run to, like, you know, show where you are in Tennessee. So that's, that, that's what the challenge is. But I think it's something somewhere around just under five miles a day if you ran every single day. So it is, I think, you know, say 35 miles a week just under. It is within, I think, the average person's capabilities to actually run it and give them something to do. Um, so that's that's what I've signed up for. But as a work colleague, I kind of put it on Twitter and a work colleague, I'll do it if you do. Okay, <laughs> I've signed up. <laughs> so I've done that this morning. I've signed up for it this morning. Yeah, my my next race is actually in Tennessee, so it's the Barkley Classic, Fall Classic in September. Oh. Hopefully, wow. so hopefully, hopefully, I'm yeah. not not putting any bets on it, like, but um, <laughs> maybe this one thousand k be better and get a few photos from Laz. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> Sharon. That's excellent. I really appreciate your time today. I actually could have just listened to you all day and unpacked loads and loads and loads of races that you've done. <laughs> um, we'll maybe visit you again sometime. Yeah, there'll be another list of races probably on, on by then, won't there? It sounds like you'll have enough races this time next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that can go in a year without racing, probably. <laughs> That's excellent. Sharon, thanks very much. Appreciate it. No, really enjoyed me. that. Cheers. Great energy from Sharon this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share with your friends. It's now back up on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. So why not subscribe to either one to ensure you don't miss an episode? You can find out more on our Facebook group, so why not come and join our community? We have Terry Veloski coming up next, who was the first person to finish the great virtual run across Tennessee. I just took a look at Strava, interested in hearing how she is able to sustain 366 miles of running in a week. Crazy miles. So until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.